this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Joshua Mazursky, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Queen's University in Ontario. His new book, Time, Language, and Ontology, The World from the Bee-Theoretic Perspective, is just out from Oxford University Press as part of their series, Oxford Studies of Time in Language and Thought. Is the present time uniquely real, or do past and future equally exist? Does the word now simply express someone's current position in time, the way the word here simply expresses someone's current position in space. In his new book, Mazursky argues for ontological commitment to past, present, and future alike, and he provides an account of tensed language in which the underlying meaning of was, is, and will be is actually tenseless. He defends his eternalist view by countering arguments for the main alternatives, in which only the present exists, or at most only the past and the present, and by showing how eternalism provides the best account of the passage of time, and is not just consistent with three-dimensionalism or endurantism about ordinary objects, but also provides the best account of it. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Joshua Mazursky. Are you there? Uh, yes, I am. Hi, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation about uh, time, language, and ontology. Uh, Thank you. And um, the usual uh, way that we like to begin these uh, interviews is to ask a a little bit about your background as a philosopher uh, and how you came to this particular project. Yes. Um, well, um, I am, uh, I guess, if you go back to what brought me to philosophy in the first place, um, I'm one of those people who uh, I've discovered there's more than a few of who uh, came to philosophy from physics. So I was a, a physics, my undergraduate degree is in, is in astronomy and physics. And um, I was one of these um students who found that um, I took some elective courses and was simultaneously drawn to philosophy and um, had that experience in, in a lot of my physics classes where um, interesting philosophical questions would arise and they'd be quickly dismissed in the class as just philosophy and we should just focus on calculation. And that combination 
um, even though I finished my degree about halfway through, I, I found myself very drawn to um, philosophy, asking the kinds of questions and uh, engaging in the kind of exploration that was really appealing to me. So um, I finished my degree, uh, spent a couple of years out of school, and when I went back, it was um, in philosophy, that, you know, philosophy that I recalled very fondly from my undergraduate days. Um, so I uh, pursued uh, philosophy as a graduate student. Um, nevertheless, I, I never kind of lost my interest entirely in, in questions that science asks. And one of them that, you know, always stuck with me was space and time. And time in particular was was of great appeal to me um, for, for reasons that are hard to explain. I, I remember even as a child being very fascinated by the concept of time and all the related issues, um, change, death, mortality, fate, determinism. I mean, even as a, as a very young <laughs> kid, I, I really kind of mulled these ideas over and somehow it became very natural for me to pursue that as a, as a philosopher. And then in a graduate school at Toronto, I took a seminar on, uh, time, but purely from a, a kind of metaphysical, semantic, and logical perspective, it wasn't a philosophy of science course. Mm-hmm. But I, I became very, very intrigued by this way of approaching the problems, and um, wrote a dissertation on it, and have been sort of working off and on on that topic for over a dozen years, and um, that brought me um, to the the topics of that this book deals with. Okay. Finally. Yeah. Um, so you you begin the book. I mean, the book is defense of of eternalism, um, yes. which on your uh, on your view has you know um, there's a metaphysical component, which yeah. is that you know past, present, and future all are equally real, yeah. and then there's a semantic component, which is you know if if that's the case, then what you know, what are the truth conditions? What is the meaning of, yeah. of, uh, tense language? Absolutely. Right. So, so there's, there's, there's both the ontology, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, philosophy of language going on, which is, yeah. which is really interesting. Um, so first of all, um, maybe you could, uh, uh, you know, perhaps flesh that out a little bit, um, just yeah. for introductory purposes, um, and also, uh, motivate the view. Right. Yeah. I mean, because just from a you know basic, non-philosophical, you might say, intuitive view, yeah. uh, at the very least, the the question yeah. of the future being real yeah. is yeah. is is definitely kind of like wait, wait a minute, you know, that's that yeah. doesn't seem correct. So, yeah. intuition isn't on your side, right? Yeah. So, so if you could. Give us an overview of the view itself and uh, and what motivates it. Yeah. Um, so you so the the two components that you mentioned are sort of you know how I describe what's often called the B theory of time. So I see it as having an ontological and a and a semantic component, and <clears throat> for a, a long you know a lot of the twentieth century history of the debates um if you look at them they were the 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 metaphysical or the ontological question was pursued you know linguistically or semantically right so the the debates 
you know, even when I was introduced to them in the in the late '90s and early 2000s, there was still a lot of that going on. So that was just sort of in the air around the debate, which is, you know, what are the truth conditions of, of tensed claims? And um, arguments would go back and forth about whether or not it's possible to give a truth conditional analysis of tense in tenseless terms. Those saying uh, no would would then commit to an a theoretic ontology, and those saying yes would commit to a B theoretic ontology. So the semantic issue was sort of the dominant issue for a long time, but I actually didn't want to approach it exclusively that way. So I wanted to also consider the ontological question independently. Mm-hmm. And so that's why that why I think you have but but at the same time it would be um, in my opinion, a very unhappy consequence if you had an ontology that conflicted with your best semantic theory. So there's, in my view, a need to see whether you can put the two together, even if they are at a certain level independent. So that's sort of the project, to see whether you can have a unified semantic and ontological account of time. Um, so that's the goal. And, and what motivates it? Well, there's there's a, a few different motivations. So so one is just reading the literature and seeing all these different debates and all these different positions staked out and wondering if there's a way to bring it all together. And secondly, noticing that there was a position that struck me as very plausible that was almost undefended if it was even articulated in the literature. And that was a combination of eternalism, tensile semantics, and endurantism, mm. three-dimensionalism. Right. That, that view just seemed to not exist in the literature anymore. And I just seemed to me that that was actually the right combination. So I wanted to put them, see whether you could put them all together. And, and it's not that... It had never been done before, um, but the, the 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 person who most famously did it, uh, Meller, D. H. Meller, right. changed his view. So he he published a book in the early '80s called Real Time, which I think was you know one of the best ever done in this. And then he in '98 he published Real Time Two, which changed his view in significant ways and in ways that I think took him further away from where he should have been. And, and other than, than that, you know, if you, if you scanned the literature the last 20, 30 years, to find that particular combination of views, um, you're hard-pressed to do it. So I wanted to see whether you can make that view work because it struck me as, as the right combination. And then thirdly, <clears throat> and finally, um, I, I, it, it ties into a kind of bigger project of mine, a bigger way of thinking about, you know, what, philosophy does um and our place in the universe right um which is that you know i have a kind of conception of objectivity that i'm trying to push here which is kind of at the meta level of of the book which is um the idea that it is possible it's both possible and correct (laughs) for us to um have a picture of the universe a picture of reality that is not tied in any fundamental way to the human perspective on that reality. 
so the kind of, you know, anti-Kantian sort of view, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, the Kantian idea that the human mind itself somehow constructs empirical reality, sort of the 180-degree turn from that, that actually reality itself doesn't, doesn't you know, construct itself, if, if I can put it that way, with any regard to how it's going to appear to us or seem to us. And so... Um, I draw this connection very early in the book between um, this way of looking at time and, and a, a standard way of looking at space, right? Which is that even though as we engage in our world, we have to kind of center it spatially. We have to kind of center it on ourselves in order to engage in this world in any way. We have to kind of view the world as carved up into the here and the there. We agree that space itself doesn't respect that carving. It doesn't carve itself up into the here and the there. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see whether we could do the same thing with time. Can we have a view of time where time doesn't, I mean, it's it's essential that we carve it up into the now and the not now to engage in the world. But can we have a picture of time that time itself doesn't respect that? It's, as it were, completely independent of our perspective on it and not only can we make that as a work can we have that ontological model is that a kind of picture that's expressible and because the number of people have argued that we the the resources of our language or the limitations of our uh, expressive abilities mean that we can't even understand or express such a view of the world and i wanted to see whether we could Mm -hmm. um because I think that it's that most of the arguments for having to cent- for time itself being centered on the present, not just our perspective on time singling out one amongst others, but time itself, the universe itself singling out one of those times, mm-hmm. most of the arguments for that to me struck me as perfectly analogous for the need for space to single out a here. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought that it's, it, it just couldn't work. And so we had to see whether, or I had to see whether it was possible to come up with a, a, an ontology and a semantics that were, as it were, perspective-free, utterly objective. And, and that's what I'm trying to do. Okay, well, that's, that was very, uh, very illuminating. Um, and, and I guess, you know, given your you know, ultra-objectivism, um, yes. and then also your, your background in physics. Um, yeah sort of suggests, uh, you know, the following, the following question. Um, mm-hmm. Why is this a philosophical question? I mean, it's, it's um, yeah. you know, physics tells us about space-time, you know, and, yeah. and so we have certain... So anybody who's, who, yeah. who develops a, a theory of space in yeah. philosophy, you know, if, if, it's, if it's not matching in some way with what physics tells us about space, then, you know, there's no point to it, right? So in a sense, physics comes first in a way um, for space and for time, I would think. And so what is the, you know, what what can the philosopher say about time that the physicist shouldn't be saying first? What's the philosophical question? You know, why isn't this just a physical question? Yeah, so that's, that's a an, an excellent and an important question. Um, so, one in, in the hope that this doesn't 
take us too far afield. Let me let me get, give you a little bit of a sense of my answer to that question by going um, a little bit meta metaphysical for a second here. <laughs> so, so my vision of what a metaphysics is is that um, metaphysics is modeling. So I'm, I'm my view is basically the same as Lori Paul's in her um, excellent article from uh, Philosophical Studies, I think it was, about three or four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, she, she and I basically agree. So, so what I see metaphysics as, as an activity, as, a, as an intellectual activity, is um, it's, it's in, in the business of, of constructing models that um, represent reality. Not necessarily explain it in the way that a science explains that reality, but but represents it um, properly, and and part of what differentiates so so what differentiates science from metaphysics, in my view, is actually not like Paul, um, not so much the method. I think both disciplines model, um, <clears throat> but the subject matter, right? So so metaphysics just takes on issues that are maybe broader, more abstract, or more general than any particular scientific investigation does. Um, so let's, so, so let's now go back to sort of the science, the physics versus the metaphysics of time in particular. So an example that I would maybe point out to, to answer your question. So, you know, Hilary Putnam very famously in 67 published an article in the journal of philosophy, arguing that all the philosophical problems about time have basically been solved by special relativity, right? Special relativity, he argues, just entails that um, every point in space-time is equally real, and there's just nothing more to argue about whether time passes or whether presentism could be true or anything like that. And Howard Stein replied a few years later saying, no, actually, you can quite straightforwardly define in the context of Minkowski space-time um, an asymmetry at any point in space-time that allows the future at that point to be considered open. And then there was a debate between him and Nicholas Maxwell about this. Um, they called the open future, or Maxwell called it probabilism and said, is it compatible with special relativity? And this debate, I see today as kind of a, something of a stalemate, or at least an ongoing question. But what it demonstrates to me is that the physical model that is special relativity just doesn't answer the question, the ontological, what we might call an ontological question about the, the, the reality of all times or all points in space-time because that's not really what it's a model of. So Putnam has some assumptions in his article that he thinks combine with the basic metric of space-time, the four-dimensional interval of Minkowski space-time. He says you combine these and you get what he called determinism, all space point space-time being real. Stein says, no, you can make some other assumptions perfectly compatibly with Minkowski space-time and get open future. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> so I see it as the, the mo- so Minkowski space-time is a model, but it, it doesn't answer those questions on its own. Those further questions about the reality of the distant future and distant past. That's an open question. You need a different model or a broader model to answer those questions. And what, what people like Stein and Maxwell and these guys are engaged in, in my view, is, is proposing models and arguing about them. So, <clears throat> of course, and, I, and so 
one part of your question was, you know, doesn't the, the, the physics come first or the science come first? And it does in a sense, in the sense that if the metaphysical model is flat out incompatible with a well-established scientific theory, then you're sunk, <laughs> right? So that's, right. that's the end of it. Um, but what I think the debates show is that there is more than one metaphysical or ontological model that is compatible with, say, Minkowski space-time. Mm-hmm. To you, right, so <clears throat> so what what you're doing when you're doing metaphysics is you're asking either a question that's just left unanswered by the other model, or that question that's more general and abstract, but that you still think has some interest, but just isn't the kind of thing that is addressed by the mathematical model that is already you know well in use. So so as I see it, there is still a question. Even if you you accept one hundred percent, you know the Minkowski space time as the right model of space time. Mm-hmm. There is a sort of a, a broader question about you know there are broader questions about the structure of time that remain to be addressed. Okay. So that's what I what I'm what I see the metaphysics of time doing, and what I see myself doing in the book. Okay, um, and let me let me just follow follow that up. So, do you see mm-hmm. the uh, the debate between your uh, between eternalism or your version yeah. of eternalism, and then um, uh, presentism or any other alternative? Do you see these as uh, potentially um, mm-hmm. the sources of empirically testable consequences that might further allow us to develop uh, a physical theory in which, you know, one of them actually turns out to be yeah. the true one or at least closer to the truth or less false or something like yeah. that, where we can actually – where there's not a perennial – so the physics leaves open, it's compatible with various yeah. other further models – that's all fine, but is this like open forever, or right. are there consequences from either that would actually, you know, might settle the debate? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think <laughs> the the history of of metaphysics should lead me to be relatively pessimistic, or shall we say, cautious <laughs> to say right. there will likely be. I, I mean, it's unlikely that there will be direct testable consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, Simply because you know the subject matter of the of, of the ontological modeling is so general or so abstract that it's hard to know, right? But so the considerations that will settle them will be things, you know, the the standard things that that leave these debates, you know, running for a very long time. You know, there'll be theoretical considerations of simplicity and and. Do they unify things well? How well do they accord with our experience? And, you know, and, right. and all these balancing considerations. So, you know, the, the idea that you'll have a, a, a testable consequence, um, I think it's pretty unlikely. Um, but I, I do remain relatively optimistic that theoretical considerations can at least pare down the possibilities mm-hmm. and make things um, certain views relatively plausible in comparison to the others. Um, so I think it's 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 rare that you know a metaphysical or even an epistemological theory you know in philosophy ends up having a direct testable consequence. Although you know the opposite does often happen, right? So the scientific results do sometimes weed out some of the ontological possibilities. Um, so we can still make some some slow progress here. 
Okay. Um, so let's let's um, get to some of the arguments in the book. Mm-hmm. I mean, in your your defense of eternalism, you know, kind of takes in a way two parts. Um, yeah. You know, one is uh, the alternatives; they don't do too well, yeah. and the other is. And look what eternalism buys us in terms of, you know, a nice package with ordinary objects and a nice account of the passage of time. You know, all these – so it gives us all these things we want and the alternatives, you know, don't actually succeed in showing that, uh, you know, that the eternalist view is, is, you know, incoherent or, you know, can't can't do what we want it to do. Okay. So um, first chapters are the the negative part, right? Yeah. uh, yep. So let's let's you know first of all let's let's talk a little bit about that. The first mm-hmm. the first part is you know the main I guess issue is uh, the future, right? Yeah. Um, you know that's that's as I said earlier the intuitive uh, yeah. issue that well you know the present exists. Um, yeah. Maybe the past exists. I mean that's that's debatable mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a you know presentist would say it's no it's just the present. Um, yeah. uh, but let's just focus on the future for a moment. And the, yeah. the alternatives there, uh, you divide them into into two views. Um, yeah. One is the idea that the future is empty, the empty future view. There's just mm-hmm. nothing. There's it's just yeah. there's nothing to make a sentence about the future true or false. They're just not. Yeah. They're indeterminate. Um, yeah. And that, I think, was was basically Aristotle's view in his discussion of the mm-hmm. of the sea battle tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it didn't mm-hmm. have a, tr- you know, it, it didn't have a, um, yeah. uh, it wasn't true or false. It was, it was just indeterminate because the future yeah. was empty. Um, yeah. The other one you mentioned is the, uh, what you call the, the branching futurist view, where there are yeah. many Many possible futures um, that I yeah. uh, um, uh, I don't know if you want to say they they all I don't think you want to say they all exist, uh, but in any case there are there are there are in some 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 sense of are yeah. many possible futures, yeah. uh, but only one of them actually you know gets actualized or realized right. right? Yeah. Um, so you argue against both of these, mm-hmm. um, and maybe you can summarize for us what yeah. your responses to those two two right. arguments. So yeah, so there's there's probably two parts to that that are worth uh, addressing. So, or at least there's sort of two parts of my answer. So one part is so the idea that I mentioned a, a few moments ago about my view of what we're doing when we do ontology, which is modeling. So we're, we're coming up with, and, and in my view, they're, they're, I mean, I don't really get into this, but it's basically a formal model, actually. But, but when, we're, when we're doing ontology, we're proposing models that we take to accurately represent, right, to be, to, to, to be structurally similar to what it is they represent. And so what I do is I basically consider what I call the empty future and the branching future views as models and see whether they succeed in what by their own terms they're trying to do. So they're, each one is trying to provide a model of time that, you know, as you know, how I might put it, you know, ontologizes the passage of time. So on each of these views, the passage of time is a is a kind of 
substantial process. <laughs> so for the empty future view, you know, the universe evolves by, you know, what I think C.D. Brock called the accretion of facts or the accretion of slices of reality to the end <laughs> of the universe. So the universe at any given time, all of reality consists of everything that has happened in the past up until the present. And then the passage of time consists in, you know, accretion of additional reality to that leading edge of the universe. Mm. And for the branching futurist, um, uh, Storrs McCall is sort of um, one of the primary proponents here. Um, the idea is that the universe actually contains alternative future histories that branch off from the present, but the passage of time is sort of the lopping off of those branches, as it were, with only one remaining, and then there's a new branch point with a new fan of branches from there. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> so what I argue is that in each of these views, right, there, there is something that the proponent of the view says is true of time that isn't ever captured in any of the models, so for the branching futurist, right, the branch, uh, for, sorry, for the empty futurist, there's, there's claims that the claim is, you know, so, so Thule, you know, broad that picture, you have to assume that at any given time, the, the model that contains the past and the present, but no future is a, is a complete description of the universe at that time. If you have to bring future versions of the universe into your model, So in other words, if you imagine an array of pictures of our universe, each one a little bit bigger than the one next to it, that includes, you know, a little bit of future relative to the past one. Mm -hmm. If you have to have all of those in your model, right, then you don't actually have a model that excludes future times. They're there in the model. But if you want to have a model that's restricted so that it doesn't include those future times, there's nothing in the model that grounds the claim that the universe will grow into its, those bigger and bigger trunks. The, the, there's just nothing in there. The model just consists of a, a past and a present, and that's it. And it also doesn't ground retroactive claims about the past. So you want to say, well, now the future extends to this point, but yesterday there didn't exist anything beyond then. So all those slices of reality between now and yesterday, they didn't exist yesterday. But again, your model, if it's restricted to what exists right now, doesn't actually ground that claim, doesn't support that claim, because your model includes everything between now and then. Um, So you're going to have to, and my argument is you're going to have to actually implicitly appeal to a separate picture of the universe, a separate model that, in, that is shorter, as it were, smaller. And so you're, in order to make claims about the way the universe was and the way the universe will be, to in, actually import those into your model, you have to include those future and past versions of the universe so you don't actually get a model that doesn't have all times in it. And a similar claim attaches to the branching picture. So the branching futurist wants to say, well, Yesterday, the universe contained all kinds of branches that don't exist anymore. But the model today doesn't have those branches. So it's just, it's entirely compatible with the claim that those branches never existed. The model doesn't distinguish between a universe in which those branches never existed and the one in which they did exist. And again, 
implicitly both people like Thule and McCall end up appealing to a bigger model, one that includes all past configurations and all future configurations. They do it at certain points in their analyses. Mm -hmm. And I argue that there's a good reason for that. You have to include those pictures, as it were, those those elements in your model if you want to have grounds or things in your model that support these claims about the universe, namely that it once had more branches or it once was smaller and it will be bigger or it will be, um, it will have fewer branches. Mm-hmm. So, on, so I argue that the models themselves either implicitly commit or, you know, have elements in them that correspond to future and past times, mm-hmm. or they just leave unaccounted for something that is central to the model, namely growth by accretion of facts or growth by branch attrition. So either those things, those elements are missing in the model mm-hmm. or they're there, but you end up having all times. And it, so you either have, an, in my view, you have either an unsatisfactory model or you have a model that's uh, indistinguishable from eternalism. So, um, I mean, the, the, this talk of models has, has been helpful. Um, mm-hmm. So could could either of these people say, well, my model, I have my model, and then I have my, uh, or maybe uh, maybe I should first ask what you mean by model, but uh, if you think of a model as some sort of a framework yeah. that gets interpreted, mm-hmm. um, uh, they can, couldn't, couldn't they say, I have, my model, you know, says that there will be either, you know, accretion or... Mm-hmm. Uh, lopping off of branches, mm-hmm. um, and and those are you know they're implicitly they're in there's room for them in the model, but the model is not completely interpreted or something like that. Yeah, um, and and so it's not a problem for yeah. my model that I have room for further interpretation given yeah. my ontology. Yeah. Um, those things just, you know, those elements of the model get interpreted yeah. as time passes. And that's that's exactly what they would want to say, isn't it? Well, I think you're probably right that that's what they would want to say, right? But where I'm going to push back is on this question of then what the interpretation amounts to. So, so, so typically when I think about interpreting a theory, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think about something that we could sort of loosely describe in model theoretic terms, right? As giving an inter- as 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 giving an interpretation of the model, be providing a semantics for it. So, right, you'd you'd, you'd have extensions for your predicates. You'd have um, objects that are assigned to your constants, and you would do this kind of thing. And so, what I'm in a sense, in a sense, saying to these people is that process of interpretation isn't open to you unless you import all those future and past times into the model. You aren't going to have a semantics for these claims. There is going to be claims that you say are true, but you're not going to be able to provide a model of what makes them true. So that's that's really, in a sense, a, in a, a good way, actually. Your question is a good way of getting to the heart of what my concern is. How do you, given these models, provide a semantics for the claim that, you know, the universe will evolve this way or time will pass in this way. Um, I don't see how you do it without importing 
those elements actually into the model. Okay. Right? So, so what yeah. grounds the interpretation, in other words? Right. right. Um, well, so let's... Um, Okay, semantics. I mean, you you, you brought it up, so let's yeah. let's turn to that. I mean, it's yeah. it's an important element of the of of your eternalist view, but it's yeah. it's also a critical issue um, in terms of understanding. Um, you know, the whole the whole debate is how we are supposed to interpret yeah. uh, sentences that are about the past or about the future. Yeah, um, and for you. Um, okay, so as an eternalist, um, all times, past, present, future, exist. Yeah. Uh, they're equal. There's nothing special about now. It's yeah. it's it's just happens to be simultaneous with the, you know mm-hmm. whatever I'm doing or something yep. like that. Yep. Um, so there's no um, there's no ontological significance to the present. Yep. Um, there are different ways we talk about it, but that's compatible with. Uh, no additional ontological oomph. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's sort of, you know, as I see it, it the view is kind of like uh, when we say that something is under something or at the same level of as something or on top of something, those are ways of, you know, dividing up space, yeah. but they don't mean that, oh, these the the space that's at the same level is ontologically you know more real than the space that's underneath or the yeah. space that's above they're all the same you know mm-hmm. um, that's right so you're uh, you want to say you you need to say something like or you give an account of you know if I say I went running yesterday mm-hmm. um, you know that temporal period um, the the period that makes the sentence true as well as, I guess, my action during that mm-hmm. period um, mm-hmm. still exists. Um, and then if I say I will go running tomorrow, mm-hmm. uh, the same thing. The, the, the truth condition, uh, the, the temporal period which will contribute to the truth condition of that sentence, um, mm-hmm. is, it, it's there. It's already there. Um, so as a result, um, as, as I think what you, I don't know if you put it exactly this way, but mm-hmm. basically the, the surface grammar, we have a tensed grammar, yeah. um, but underlying that the reality is untensed. That's right. Okay. Um, can you, you know, kind of lay this out a little bit more than sure. I just sort of skimmed over? Right. So, um, yeah, so I'll, I'll just, to start, pick up on something you just said, right, which, which connects the two the two parts of the book nicely right which is that if the the eternalist so you know if as i argue in the in the first part of the book the any models that try to you know make position and time ontologically relevant right so they restrict reality somehow based on position and time if those all end up being in a certain sense self-undermining because they require um, propositions about the nature of time that can't be grounded or, as we were saying before, maybe interpreted in that model. Mm-hmm. So if that's true, then I argue, basically my, my conclusion is that, you know, then we're just, you know, committed to having all times in our model. That's just the only alternative left that has any plausibility to it. And it, of course, 
has the manifest feature, right? Because it's defined in contrast to those that it doesn't have any claims about times that are not interpretable in the model because they're all there in the model and all their properties are there in the model. So it's, so it has that distinct advantage, right? So that goes back a little bit to your earlier question about, you know, trade-offs about the sort of seeming counterintuitiveness of eternalism, right? So so there's, there's, there's a trade-off, there's an advantage, right? It's, it's right there. Anything you want to say about time, you have them all in your model. Okay. So, so yes, so, so I argue that we're kind of forced into a position where we have to put all times in our ontological model, distant past to distant future, potentially infinite in both directions. So, how does that now connect up with the semantic issue? Well, so you're right, okay? So you're absolutely right that when we think, talk, and mull about time, we are kind of, it feels as though we're kind of forced <laughs> into the present. We're, we're constrained, we're, we're, we're trapped in the, in, the, in the present, as it were. And... It, it seems such a fundamental aspect of our way of thinking and talking and experiencing time that it seems to many philosophers and, and some non-philosophers to present a, at least a prima facie conflict with that eternalist picture. So the, the, the people who I'm, I'm particularly interested in, in engaging are those who argue that this is much more than a, a prima facie conflict. This is a very, very deep conflict. So those there are, there are philosophers of language out there who argue that if the eternalist picture is correct, then you are stuck in the position of having no workable semantics for tensed language. It just you just don't have it. So it's sort of a turnaround of the argument that I'm making in the first few chapters, which is that, you know, if you if you ontolog- if you make time ontologically relevant in your model, so you restrict what's in your model based on time, um, then you just don't have a model for things you want to say about time. That's basically my challenge to anybody who does a temporally restricted ontology. Mm-hmm. And so these so there's there's some some very interesting I think if ultimately un, to me unconvincing but there's some very interesting arguments that go in exactly the opposite direction. If you're an eternalist, you just don't have a model for tensed discourse, and yet that discourse is clearly workable and successful and even necessary. So now you're in a deep problem, B theorist. You don't have a model for what's going on here. <laughs> Okay? Mm-hmm. You don't have an interpretation okay. of, of this discourse, of this language, of these beliefs. So, so that's one way in which the ontological and the semantic issues, I think, deeply connect. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. Um, <clears throat> so so uh, sorry, before I go on, so, so, so then there's, there's been a, a long you know, tradition in, in at least uh, analytic philosophy of language about debates about, you know, as I would put it, semantic models for tense. Whether, you know, you can provide a tenseless semantics for tense discourse, tense language, um, and, and thought and belief as well, right? So that's, that's one issue. And then, and then the other issue is that, that has been brought up is, you know, and um, I mentioned a few people who, who take this line, who argue that, that 
the tense, the attempts at a tenseless model for tense language, a, a tenseless semantics for tense language, aren't even possible. That that our language and thought are so fundamentally and irreducibly tense that it's not even possible to construct a tenseless semantics. So there have been some, you know, some people who've argued that point that I want to address as well in the semantic section of the book. So the the two things I want to do here is 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 argue that the the what are satisfactory ontological models also are satisfactory models for our natural language. And secondly, I want to argue that it's possible to have in both a ontological and semantic model that are entirely tenseless, free of any reference or need to, to, to single out what is singled out in our talk and experience about time, the present, because some have argued that you just can't actually do it, that you're, you're just, it's an impossible project. So I'm trying to, to do both things here. Okay. Right. Um, so, uh, well, one of the, um, uh, one of the, the, the people that you, uh, that you draw on here, or at least, mm. or at least I should say, theoretical frameworks that you draw yeah. on in in providing this tenseless semantics is yeah. is Kaplan and and his work in indexicals and yeah, the distinction absolutely. he draws between uh, content yeah. and then character. Or yeah. um, and I think you also say you know at some point um, content and and modes of presentation. Yeah, I'm, I, I think I'm you say to, that at some point. Um, I'm I'm kind of actually trying to to explain modes of presentation in terms of character. Yeah, okay, that's right. right. Okay, um, yeah. so can you can you explain how those uh, yeah. you know that that framework provides or helps you provide the 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 um, yeah. the tenseless language, the tenseless right. semantics? Sorry. Right. So <clears throat> so the the importance of, of or the importance one very important aspect for me of Kaplan's work right? I mean I, I, I mean I, I'm a huge admirer of his work I think it's got very wide-ranging importance but for me the importance of his work is that he demonstrates how certain things that the 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 atheoretic critics that I just mentioned a, a moment ago certain things that they appeal to in attacking a tenseless semantics or the possibility of tenseless semantics, he shows can be accounted for at the level of what he calls character, right? So, so the, to take um, an example that um, I think this might be one I use in the book or it's one I just borrow from Kaplan, right? But just try different to step away from temporal indexables. Look at, you know, personal indexables like I and you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, when um, you say you, uh, Carrie, were to say that, you know, I am sitting right now, um, I would express the exact same content without the, I couldn't do it with the word I. Mm-hmm. It would be impossible for me to express the same content with I, because I has a, what, what Kaplan calls a character, which I think we can kind of gloss as something like a, like a grammar or a rule of usage, which says something like, you know, um, the word I, you know, refers to 
the speaker of the word I. It's it's a you know it's a kind of reflexive rule, and so I would have to express that content with you are sitting, and I couldn't use the word I and express the same content. If I were to use the word I, I am sitting, I'd express a different proposition. I'd have a different content to my claim, mm-hmm. and what, Car- what what Kaplan I think makes makes completely convincing is that difference in character are implicated or explanatorily powerful when in, in um, behavior. So, you know, as, as his example, I think, is something like, you know, um, I am about to be attacked by a bear. And another person says he is about to be attacked by a bear. Mm-hmm. Both express the same content. You know, so let's say let's say John is the person about to be attacked by a bear. When John says, I am about to be attacked by a bear, and and his friend Sally says, you are about to be attacked by a bear, they both express the same content, same proposition, mm-hmm. but only John runs. Right. You know, let's say Sally's safely, you know, behind glass or something like that, right? So the difference in their behavior is not accounted for in a difference in the truth conditions of what they uttered. I take that to be a lesson of, of, of Kaplan, right? Their utterances are both true if and only if John is about to be attacked by a bear. Mm-hmm. But one runs, the other doesn't, because in one, the character, you know, the character of I is, you know, the speaker. So, you know, um, when John says it and he characterizes himself as I, he knows that he better run. And Sally knows that, you know, well, when I say you, that can be true even if the speaker isn't the one who's implicated in the proposition. So it doesn't entail that I have to run. Mm-hmm. And so differences in behavior don't entail differences in content or truth conditions. That's what I take to be a very important lesson of Kaplan. And I try to just basically import that lesson into facts about time. So there's no question, I argue, right? It's very clear. So in my view, all tensed predicates, you know, all tense terms, now, then, past, present, future, you know, today, tomorrow, they all express temporally invariant relations, Mm -hmm. right? So now just expresses, you know, it's now, um, it's now... Friday just says the time at which just expresses the proposition that the time I'm speaking is simultaneous with Friday. And it's just, so there's an ordered pair there, Mm -hmm. (laughs) T and Friday and expresses the simultaneity relation between them. And that never changes. That's temporally invariant content of that predicate. So yet I grant to, to the opponents of, of the B theory, it's nevertheless true that when I characterize, you know, um, the interview, is simultaneous with Friday. When I characterize it that way, that can't help me to be at my computer at the right time to speak with you <laughs> because what I expressed is a temporally invariant late, right? Uh, uh, ordered pair, which is holds yesterday and, and tomorrow and a year ago and a year from now. So what some have argued is that therefore that content is inadequate because you can believe it truthfully on Thursday and Saturday mm-hmm. as well as Friday and yet you only come to your computer to talk to Carrie on Friday so there must be more to the content of it's now time to talk to Carrie mm-hmm. it must be more to the content and what I say is no what differs is the character the character of you know 
the interview is simultaneous with Friday, right? You can represent that as the interview is tomorrow and you can represent it as the interview is now and you can represent it as the interview is was yesterday, mm-hmm. right? You can characterize it that way, but you can tell the story that's that in, in just the same way as Kaplan tells the bear story. There's not a difference in content. It's a difference in character. And that's what I – what in a sense the key – project is in the middle part of the book is to tell exactly how that story works out both in terms of difference in behavior Mm -hmm. so the one argument is you can't explain why we behave differentially when you don't have tense in the actual semantics Mm -hmm. and then the other argument of course is that inference relations that are you know uncontroversially valid aren't captured in the tenseless terms. And those in the middle part of the book, I try to explain how actually all of that can be accounted for in a tenseless semantics as long as you allow for a distinction in character. And that's basically the idea, although it you know gets a little more complicated as the story goes on, and I'm happy to talk about some of those complications. Um, okay, well, we probably, I, I actually would like to um, move to the to the last part of the book, sure. um, where you get into temporal predication and yeah. you defend a relational account. Um, yes. So properties are, you know, some object has a property at a time, and yeah. so you basically um, embrace the yeah. incredible conclusion you know the the yes. conclusion that lewis finds you know totally yes. incredible in his in his you know paper yeah. on temporary intrinsics yeah uh you say not only is that you know not sort of you know incredible or you know we should yeah. look at it with a credulous stare to yeah. use phrase some place from someplace else yeah but you say that's that's actually correct Correct. Um, yes, and and that um, so so you defend that, uh, and then in the following chapters, you know, so now we're yeah. the last part of the book. You use yeah. that to give uh, what you you know you say. Well, you know, armed with this view, this relational view of predication, you yeah. know, it's it's all temporally indexed. Yeah, um, I can give you a better account of the sense of you know the idea that yeah. time passes. Even yeah. though all times exist exactly. now, uh, yeah. I hate to say that now, but yeah. anyway, right, um, right. And it's very—it's an important distinction, actually. But yeah, yeah, um, and uh, and also, I mean, somewhat, you know, surprisingly, I think, and this is yeah. also a, a unique aspect of your defense is yeah. this idea that um, hey, uh, an eternalist, you know not only can but ought to be a three-dimensionalist, you know, should embrace the idea that, that objects endure. Yeah. Uh, they don't have, you know, temporal stages. We yeah. don't have to do any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, the, that four-dimensionalists of any stripe are going to do. We can just yeah. take our ordinary ontology of yeah. objects um, yeah. along with a somewhat counterintuitive a yep. uh, view of the times in which they exist or which they yeah. endure. Yeah. Um, so exactly. maybe maybe you can yeah. uh, give us um, a little bit of your uh, your defense of the relational yeah. uh, view, since so you know that yeah. that has been so, you know Lewis's paper in particular has been so 
influential about the, about Absolutely. that issue, and it's and it's the ground of the further claims in the book. Yeah, yeah, no, it's so so excellent. So everything pretty much I've I've articulated um, so far would more or less be pretty friendly ground for every bee theorist out there. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little more austere in my semantics than many. Like I am real eliminativist about tense, which most people think, you know, it's a little, even bee theorists think maybe I've, I've gone a bit too far on that one, but by and large, they recognize this as, you know, this is a family resemblance at least, but the vast majority of them, overwhelming majority of them, um, both commit to temporal parts and deny the passage of time, deny that, that time passes. Right. And, and I think that both of those moves are wrong. They're both, they're both, I just think, wrong, I think, just metaphysically. Like, I think that they're, they're not as well established as, or as well defend, uh, justifiable as the alternatives. But they also have this strategic flaw, which is that it gives the opposing a theoretic point of view um, much more ammunition against you because to deny that time passes to me is, is just makes your view seem really, really <laughs> far out, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So so <clears throat> the so the relational theory of predication, so David Lewis, right, famously, as you mentioned, uh, argues that there are there are basically three kinds of solution to the problem of t- uh, to the puzzle of change, or as he as he phrases it, the problem of temporary intrinsics, right? So um, an object changes w- what he calls, you know, labels it an intrinsic property. So it goes from, you know, he, I think the example is himself sitting. So his shape is bent and then he stands up and his shape becomes straight. Those are both intrinsic properties of him, but it seems to threaten his survival through the process because a, a bent thing can't be identical to a straight thing. So by Leibniz is law. So he says there's <clears throat> three possible kinds of solution. One is presentism, which he rejects for reasons not unlike mine. So we won't worry about that. One is to accept that um, shapes, like being bent and being straight, are actually relations that Lewis stands in to different times. So he stands in the bent out relation to, you know, noon and the straight relation to one. And then the third is temporal parts. So he's just composed of a series of temporal parts, one of which is in absolutely non-relationally bent and the other one is absolutely non-relationally straight something like that right so so and he thinks it's just it's just impossible to suppose that that a a shape isn't or that a shape is a relation that something stands into a time right but i just think that the argument against right his argument it really just doesn't amount to look. That's that's crazy. That couldn't be true, right? Yeah. It, because it would make it now. Now, part of it is because he thinks it would make it not intrinsic yeah. to the the property, right? And elsewhere in in his uh, his paper on on properties, he's, he he has a, a conception of what it takes for something to be in, intrinsic to something, right? And and it, he he uses the idea that you know something is intrinsic to something if it doesn't depend on the way anything else is. Something like that, right? And 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 Meller, in his sort of later views, where he comes to to reject this relational account, says something similar. He says, you know, look, an intrinsic property is something that you can um, determine just by inspecting that thing. You don't have to inspect anything else. Stuff like that, right? And I argue that on on 
on those kinds of articulations of what it is for something to be intrinsic, the relational account can allow for shape to be intrinsic, even though shape is a relation to a time. Because in order for a shape to be a relation that, that David Lewis holds to noon or something like that, it's still true that you know it doesn't depend on the way anything else is. <laughs> it just depends on the way he is at that time. Now, that implicates that the time exists, but that's okay. That's, that's proper on my view, right? And again, to go to Meller, you only have to inspect uh, David Lewis at that time to see that he's bent. You don't have to inspect anything else. But again, you have to inspect at a time. He has to be bent at a time. So it's, it's right that, it, that shape properties, color properties, all these things that, that David Lewis says are intrinsic – it's right that they entail that time exists. They, that, that the implying that a time exists, entailing that a time exists, the fact that the predicate entails that a time exists doesn't mean that the property is not intrinsic to that object. And I draw a comparison to Lewis's modal realism, right? So Lewis thinks that shape is an intrinsic property of him, but he also thinks that he couldn't have a shape if there weren't at least one world in which he exists or a counterpart and has a shape. So no, there must exist a world in order for shape, Lewis's shape to exist, right? For him to have a shape. But he doesn't think that that makes shape not intrinsic to him. And I'm saying it's exactly the same thing with times. Times are, in other words, to stand in a relation to a time for, for any, you know, temporary intrinsic property it is essential that that it stand that the object stand in a relation to some time or another, and that's just part of what it is to be a material object. On my view, there's no such thing as an object instantiating a property not at some time or another, and excluding abstract objects at right. the, for the time being. Right. Right. So, and then, <clears throat> and then, so so that's one part of it, right? And then, and then, and then, just sort of. The beginning part of it is right is that I say just sort of manifestly logically to say that x is red at t or x is bent at t on its surface that's expresses a relation I mean that again that's going to be satisfied <laughs> by ordered pairs of objects and times or something like that if you're going to again do a standard kind of semantic model of that so then the question is, what are our reasons for not believing that it expresses a relation? That's my, that's my strategy, right? It, it, it appears to be a relation. What are the reasons for thinking that it isn't? And I say, Lewis and Mahler and these guys don't actually give us convincing reasons not to think that. And in fact, what's right about the relational account is something that they think is wrong, right? So in other words, what I say is for any material object – the, the proposition, the claim that it is red or it is shaped entails at least one time exists. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. And they think that's – and Lewis thinks that's incredible. I just think that's right. Mm -hmm. To be a material object, shaped, any shape, any color, any position, right, any speed, any property at any time – entails that at least one time exists. And that's why I think it's a relation. So not only do I not think it's incredible, I actually think it's, if anything, almost obvious that they are relations because that it has that entailment. And so then the question becomes, 
why deny that it's a relation? What are the arguments for denying that it's a relation? And and I examine them in in the most you know you know I, I decide to take on who I thought were the sort of the most important and influential people in this, and people mm-hmm. like Lewis and Meller and a few others, and say, well, they don't actually give us convincing reasons to deny that they are relations. Um, so um, you know, we yeah. should accept the <laughs> we should accept what they appear to be. Yeah, um, and you, one might say the same thing about about spaces, right? Um, yeah, I would. You know, I would. In, intrinsic properties are also related to yes relations to space. I mean, yes, that it just gets implicit, and so therefore it Absolutely. kind of drops from exactly from from notice. But it's implicit, but you you need that variable to actually right. complete the proposition at, at least. As long as you think that uh, real objects in space and time can have intrinsic properties, yes, right? which, which which of course they do, right? Which I'm I'm perfectly happy with, but my view, of course, would be compatible with them not yeah. <laughs> having that, right? It would just be um, a, a different way of interpreting those relations, right. right? But they would still be relational, my view. And so, so, um, so yeah, so I spend a fair bit of time defending that. And then I say, to get to the second part of your question, um, given that if the relational count is right, then we undercut the motivation for commitment to an ontology of temporal parts. Mm-hmm. And because that was, you know, Lewis was, it was an argument from elimination, right. <laughs> you know, you, everything else fails. So you have, and this is a perfectly good argument form. So you have to go um, for temporal parts theory, however, you know, and, and he's quite explicit, you know, look, the, I, you know, however strange these things might seem, we're kind of forced into accepting them. And, it, and that's just, you know, tough luck. We have to <laughs> buy it. And, and I say, well, actually we don't. And, you know, and they are kind of strange. It's not clear what they are. Yeah. Um, and so if we have the logical machinery, if we have the, the relational account of the, or that's, I guess, semantic machinery, um, to avoid it, then let's do so. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet, because all properties, all temporary intrinsic properties are relations to times. This is perfectly temp- compatible with the eternalist ontology because it has all those times for the object to stand in its relations to. So you can have the whole history of the object in the eternalist model. You can have Lewis standing in the bent relation to one time, the straight relation to another, and so on and so forth for all his properties can be all nicely included in the model without the temporal parts. You just don't need them yeah so let's let's go for it right that's 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 the view that i just you know i said at the beginning why aren't there more b theorists who are endurantists yeah um you can't find it and meller has changed his mind about this he doesn't he doesn't accept the relational view anymore so i almost you know can't think of anybody else who does it so i just thought wow this is we have to explore this view and, and that's the last the those two chapters of the book well, we we are out of time, so I just um, you you just mentioned the B theory, and I just just yeah. extremely quickly, um, yeah. uh, you know this the distinction A theory B theory, yeah. you know, is from uh, uh, McTaggart, right? yeah, um, and but that plays no role in your book. I mean, McTaggart's it's not like argument. yeah, yeah. No role. No so, role. Um, is, is this anything more than just? Uh, you know, kind of labels to help people, you know, kind of yeah. get an initial grip. Yeah. Is, is that all it is? 
it, you know, me, I mean, it seems to me that's all it was, but for I just me, wanted to make sure. For me, the, the, the terms have become so well established that I want to keep using them. Uh-huh. But they are just they are just names for sort of a family of view. And, and while I think one can mount a very solid defense of what McTaggart was going on about in his, his article, I really wanted to show that you don't have to appeal to his actual arguments to, to defend the B, what, what I'm calling the B theory because everyone else calls it a B theory. So yeah, yeah, they're basically labels, but, um, sorry, but just, if I can just get one more thing in before we go, I know we are running late. The other thing that, that distinguishes me from other B theorists, of course, you mentioned quickly, uh, you mentioned, I just want to quickly mention is that I actually think that if you believe in an objective B theoretic temporal ordering, which all eternalists do for them as far as i know um then i think you have a conception of the passage of time most be i mean overwhelmingly be theorists deny that time passes because they think that they tie the passage of time to a, a temporally restricted ontology or something like that that it has to be something like things coming into existence or you know branch attrition or something like that but i say that actually if you have a model that includes a temporal ordering of events, then that is a model that includes the passage of time because that means that basically things are happening in sequence. Mm. So time is passing, but it's perspective-free temporal passage. Time's passing doesn't mean that time's passing is in reference to a specific point. It's, as it were, the entire temporal model that manifests passage in virtue of being temporally ordered. So I just wanted to kind of sneak that in because that's controversial component of the picture I draw. Right. And it's, uh, it's, you know, one of many interesting aspects that we unfortunately uh, don't have time to, to get to, um, but hopefully we'll encourage people to um, actually grapple with the book themselves. Oh, um, so last, true. last final question is yeah. um, where, where do you go from here? I mean, do you, are you yeah. going to follow up this book or turn to yeah. a different project altogether or what? Well, I have, I have sort of uh, two projects that are, are kind of a combination of both of those. Um, they're sort of both moving on and following up at the same time. So um, one is um, uh, I just really just started working on this one. Um, it's really just in the formative idea stage, right? But the, the, at the very beginning, the, you know, I articulated my agreement with, with Laurie Paul about metaphysics as modeling. So I want to do more work on fleshing that out on, on, you know, how metaphysics could be a modeling pursuit, what kind of modeling it is, mm-hmm. and then just more sort of, you know, relating it up to ideas about formal modeling in general, including, you know, mathematical modeling. So I just want to, you know, do that kind of meta metaphysical work mm-hmm. and, and flesh that out. Um, and then the second one is the notion of sort of this, you know, su- as you call it, I think, super objectivist <laughs> or super objectivist. Ultra, ultra, ultra objectivity it, view. Yeah. Um, it, branching out and, and sort of developing that in directions other than space and time. So just, you know, other areas of work. So issues, you know, in philosophy of mind and, and mathematics and other things like that. Um, so I have some some rough drafts of chapters of things I'm working on, on that project. So the, 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 the one where um, the human perspective sort of fades out of the picture and yet still arguing that we can still paint that picture. So those are my two sort of things I'm working on now. Cool. 
Okay. Well, um, we are definitely out of time. <laughs> so, um, but thank you again for, for taking the time to, to talk about your new book. And well, Thank um, you very much. I look forward to seeing your other work. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to my interview with Joshua Mazursky, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Queen's University in Ontario. We've been talking about his new book, Time, Language, and Ontology, The World from the Bee Theoretic Perspective, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening. <laughs>